Our scripture lesson for today is in your worship bulletin. You may want to follow along in your own translation of the scriptures. Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and that your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying at a single hour to your span of life, and why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Therefore do not worry, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. After all the incredible music and the choir anthem, which was all about this passage of scripture, I feel like I could just say two things and we could move on. Number one, happy All Hallows Eve. And number two, go Braves. But, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's been a long time. Somebody said, is it okay to pray for the Braves? And I said, it would be wrong not to pray for the Braves. So, uh, please. Keep that in mind, if you will. I know some of us had the Braves' bleariness in our eyes, but that's okay. It's a good bleary. Three weeks ago today, though, we began the stewardship emphasis, which is simply titled treasure, one word, treasure. The entire series has been based on the Sermon on the Mount, especially Matthew chapter 6, and we've just read another passage from Matthew 6. My hope is that these have been times of maybe education and some inspiration and maybe some perspiration as we examine our motivation for giving or not. The desired outcome would be an elevation of our obligation to the one who loves us more than all, most of all. On October 10th, we wrestled with the question, where's your heart? And our focus was not so much on the physical hearts that when they stop beating, that's about the end of the conversation on this side of the Jordan River. But we zeroed in on our metaphorical hearts, the seat of our intellect, the seat of our emotions, according to the ancient folks, and talked about things happening inside. That's where we get expressions like straight to the heart or the heart of the matter. And we use those expressions a lot. We use that word heart a lot to talk about that metaphorical heart. The Jesus answer was, our hearts are where our treasure is. What do we treasure? What 
holds sway in our lives. And on October the 17th, when Andrew preached, the text was about the problem with trying to serve two masters, God and money. It says we can't do it. Deep within each of our hearts is a throne, and that throne is not a two-seater kind of throne. What or who is calling the shots? Who loves us the most? It's a question that's always worthy of our consideration when we're thinking about where do we put our treasure? Where do our gifts go? Our consideration, and it's an answer that brings clarification the more we think and pray about it. Last Sunday, October 24th, we talked about giving our treasure back to God. And unless God blesses us with physical strength and mental capacity and the natural resources of this good earth, there is no way we can acquire any treasure. This makes God the rightful owner of all that is, all that we have. And our landing place last week, I think could best be described by the phrase, the only way to give to God is by giving to others. If someone wants to get on our good side, so to speak, is there any better way than to extend a kindness or a gift to one of our children or grandchildren or for some of you great-grandchildren? And that brings us to today's focus, don't worry about a thing. It seems to sum up what Jesus says in today's passage. And it seems to sum up, I think, what Bob Marley was trying to sing and teach us in that song, Three Little Birds. And I won't burden you with trying to sing it, but I love the tune and I love it. Look it up and listen to it. Three Little Birds, Bob Marley. Great song about worry. Don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right. And then in 1988, there was that hit song by Bobby McFerrin that you might remember, Don't Worry, Be Happy. And, of course, the Beach Boys always have to get in on the act, and they did. Well, it's been building up inside of me for, oh, I don't know how long, but I keep thinking something's bound to go wrong. But she looks in my eyes and makes me realize, and she says, don't worry, baby. Everything will be all right. Don't worry about a thing. Hold that thought, if you will, for a while while I share a few more thoughts with you. There's something plaguing the American people, someone has wrote, of the 21st century. And I'm not talking about a pandemic or that kind of plague. I think our current plague is worry. We live in an age of great anxiety. So many worries. One estimate I've heard is that there are more than 40 million people who've been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but even if it's close, it's a lot of folks. And this says nothing about the countless number of folks who are burdened and weighed down and struggle with worry every day. We worry about family and finance in the future, and we worry about how those three things are going to impact each other and the difference that makes in our lives. But worry is not a new phenomenon. It was the ancient Greeks who came up with the term for worry, agoraphobia, and today we use that to talk about a fear of public places. But they didn't have, those folks didn't have, I don't think, the variety and the extent of anxieties and intensity of phobias from which we suffer today. Therefore, I say to you, Jesus said, don't worry about your life. 
And that's how our gospel lesson began. So let's take a little bit closer look at that passage. Douglas Hare, who's a New Testament scholar, says that of all the passages in the Bible about trust, this is probably the best known and the best loved. Most folks can quote this passage, or at least they're familiar with it. Why does it move us more powerfully than, say, the straightforward prose of the Apostle Paul? Philippians 4, 6, have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. That's pretty straightforward, and that's pretty moving, but when we start thinking about Jesus talking about birds of the air and lilies of the field, and we don't know enough about the original Aramaic to know if he was speaking prosaically or if he was speaking poetically, but the tendency is toward poetry and the way that moves us and the way this passage speaks to us. Now, some folks fear that this passage, take no worry about tomorrow. Look at the birds. Watch the lilies grow. That something like that could promote laziness and irresponsibility. I guess it could, but that's, that's not how I understand this passage. Furthermore, it's not true to say it, that all birds, isn't it true to say that not all birds are adequately fed and not all lilies reach maturity in their growth? I mean, in all honesty, drought and other catastrophes cut short the lives of the birds and the flowers as well and humans who trust in God. It's simply not the case that those who seek first the kingdom of God, will have everything necessary for life added to them. And how unwise to tell folks, don't be concerned about tomorrow. Careful planning can offset the effects of drought and plague and whatever else comes along. The realities of life make that difficult for some folks to grasp. And they say, that's not my experience, that's not my story. We can defend the passage against some of these criticisms by looking back at the original context. Jesus' closest followers abandoned their vocations, walked away from family obligations sometimes to be with him full time, to learn from him, to share his work of announcing the kingdom of God, to learn how to do it the Jesus way. They became as dependent on God's providential care as the birds and the lilies that Jesus spoke of. The passage can be understood by all folks when it's read as poetry instead of prose, I think. The birds of the air, the lilies of the field, those images become larger than life and we can expand on those. They are not models to be imitated, but powerful symbols of God's providential care. It's irrelevant to the meaning of the passage that some birds starved to death, that some lilies, some flowers fail to reach maturity. The development of these symbols draws our attention away from our frantic pursuit of the realities of everyday life to a calmer vision of God's bountiful care. Don't worry, do trust. And we're singing a lot in our hymns today about trusting. Learn to discern the fine line between worry and concern. Author, lecturer, financial guru, Ron Blue, some of you will remember him. He was sort of a forerunner to, to Dave Ramsey.
he said that many Christians are fear-driven. And I do believe that worry and fear are kissing cousins. Nelson Mandela said, I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave person is not one who does not feel afraid, but one who has conquered that fear. Trust is the key to conquering fear and wiping out worry. Last week I mentioned a little book that I found at the United Methodist Children's Home back before they became well-rooted and sold there, the Cater campus. The little book that I bought for 50 cents said it was a $17 book, I don't know. But anyway, it was called Generous Faith by Sister Bridget Hayes. And so begging your indulgence, there's another story I want to share from that book. And then I'll set it aside for a while. The story comes from the middle section of the book, which has to do with trusting in divine care or learning not to worry. And as I read these stories, I found some familiarity with my own upbringing. And maybe you will have a story that's part of your life that, that touches as relevant to what's going on here. Anyway, she said, from the time I was a little child, my mother would say to me, God will take care of you. And then she gave me a hanky or a hug or a bidding to go play. The assurance would dry my tears, would mend the scratches on my bicycle, and bless me as I made clover crowns in the summer grass. Those words made me feel secure, though I wasn't quite sure about what God's care looked like or how it happened. Years later, through two important experiences, she said, I would understand this to be a practice of the abundant life, accepting and trusting in God's divine care. And isn't that what the gospel lesson is all about? The first experience was, she said, in 1961, December, my mother had given my brothers, my younger brothers, the ultimatum, boys, set out your toys, sort out your toys. No hemming, no hawing, and it has to do, it will have a great impact on Santa Claus coming this year. So that was enough to get the wheels in motion. She said broken water guns and all kinds of other toys, balsa wood airplanes, you remember the little gliders and stretched out slinkies. They're, they're no good, are they, once they've been? Darts ads, minus darts, split bats, deflated basketballs, a year's worth of odd accumulations were hauled out to the front sidewalk and placed by the street to be picked up as refuse. The good stuff, Mama said, take that to the back of the house, to the breakfast room. Several hours later, my brother, Philip, yelled for my mother, come to the bay window. And there was an African-American man who was carefully going through the discarded toys and he would examine each one, either returning it to the pile or, or putting it aside. And his very presence, to say nothing of his rummaging through the sidewalk collection, was an unwritten, forbidden occurrence in this all-white neighborhood. My mother went outside asking if she could help him. The man, hesitating in fear, choked back tears. Christmas is coming, ma'am. I'm just looking for some toys to, to bring to my children. Out of work now, don't have much for extras. Just been walking this neighborhood with hope. My mother understood even before he had time to finish his sentence. She then did what was unheard of at the time. She invited this good father into our home and said, Mister, you come with me. All the good stuff's on the inside. And then she proceeded to bring him through the front door to the back and told him to take whatever he wanted. It was a high ticket collection, log cabin set, 
fire engine, bulldozers, trucks, spinning toys, yo-yos, model airplanes, board games with all the pieces. Thoughtfully, he selected one gift for each of his four children. And after she encouraged him to believe that God would care for him and for his family, Mama again ushered him to the front door. And with a genuine grateful handshake and a warm mutual Merry Christmas, he slowly descended the walkway and eased on down the block. Moving beyond Southern society's taboos of the 60s, Mama knew that race relations started with believing that we're all related. The next time she said that I understood God's divine care seven years later, another December day after my father had committed suicide in October, Mama was left with thousands of dollars of debt, $12 in daddy's wallet and the support of two younger children. She was still immersed in the lonely darkness of grief and shock. She could not meet house payments. She needed employment and she was aware that holidays were just around the corner. One afternoon, my youngest brother broached the subject, Mama, do you think there's going to be Christmas this year? My mother hugged him tightly. Yes, son, she said. She said it in faith, not sight. There will always be Christmas in this house. God will take care of us. Weeks later, several friends dissolved suicide's present stigma with Christmas greetings. And when they surprised Mama with a Christmas fir tree and they decorated it, and they placed beautifully wrapped presents of board games and fire trucks with sirens and movable ladders and super deluxe yo-yos and mama's favorite rose-scented dusting powder. And then they delicately placed a tray of sugar-coated pecans and homemade pralines on the breakfast room table. Wiping away a tear, mama was grateful and murmured how God takes care of us. These good neighbors worked my family a blessed Christmas and slowly descended the walkway, disappearing down the block. Trusting in divine care, she said, asserts that no situation is too complex for God. Trusting in divine care is not measured by feelings. Feelings can trick us and deceive us. And when we feel abandoned by God, we can be encouraged to abandon ourselves to God's divine care. Look at the birds. Consider the lilies. A gunshot shattered my mother's world and caused it to fall apart. But family, friends, and neighbors began to help her pick up the pieces and to rebuild. They made many sacrifices on her behalf, took personal risk, offered prayers beyond count. As she did what she could herself, she also learned to lean on God and lean on other people. And that's tough for some of us, isn't it? When we always thought we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps, we've got this. And sometimes we need other folk, and always we need God. And she said, neither God nor friends failed her. And once again, with trust and acceptance, she could proclaim to her children, despite all the odds, God always takes care of us. Trust is the antidote for the poison of worry. Jesus gives practical wisdom for giving and for living. He asks, who among you by worrying can add a single moment to your life? What do we gain by worrying? We know that it gives us stress and anxiety and it, it does damage to our physical bodies. Practically speaking, worry does not gain us anything, but what does it cost us? 
picture of Charlie Brown and Linus sitting in the backyard and looking downcast. The caption read, worrying won't stop the bad stuff from happening. It just keeps you from enjoying the good stuff. Jacob Armstrong said, trusting in God allows us to embrace the time that we are here. And heaven knows how fast it seems to go by. When we're worried, we ask, what will I eat? What will I drink? What will I wear? Jesus directs us instead to seek first the kingdom of God. God wants to be our top priority. And when that happens, it's amazing how many things just seem to fall into place. And as we give our gifts to God, we seek and acknowledge God to be first in our lives. And we trust our whole lives to the God who cares for us. Amen.